as I look back, what really happened was I was just trying to figure out life. Um, I was 21 years old. Uh, I'd been blown up in Vietnam. Yeah, and I remember uh, getting all that stuff. And also I got prosthetics and I was doing all this stuff. When you watch Forrest Gump, it's kind of exciting. A lot of people think that I should be Lieutenant Dan, but I actually relate better to Forrest. Uh, and when he started running, that was what really changed for me. I started playing wheelchair basketball, but the one thing I like to do is interact with able-bodied people. I wanted to be no different than anybody else. I just wanted to do my thing. You know, one milers, two milers, five Ks, you know, whatever race, working towards a marathon. And I liked it because I could go out and run with hundreds of people, even though I was in a wheelchair. And now I could just communicate with them. And, and it was just fun. It was just part of getting involved and getting back into a normal life. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Hi, this is Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It. Today is super exciting for me because I'm going to embarrass him, but I am with one of my greatest heroes in, in the sport of skiing, in the sport of wheelchair racing a Paralympic gold medalist in skiing, a Paralympic gold medalist in, in wheelchair racing, in basketball as well, right, Jim? Yeah, I was pretty good in basketball. I was on the Paralympic team, but not quite. The team was so good, I was like the last man on the bench. <laughs> exactly. Boston Marathon winner. Yes. Uh, competed in the X Games in a monoski, in the monoskier X at, was that 65? Do you remember how old you were? I was 60 years old. Were you 60 years old? Okay. Yeah, six, maybe older. I don't know. At, time, <laughs> at this age, everything is relative. I, I still think I'm, I still act like I'm young, but I, now I look at this picture here and I see myself, I go, who is that old guy? When I saw you last, when we were together in person last, you were saying that you were out skiing with your nephews and they said, Uncle Jim, nobody goes bigger than you. Now, you said your nephews, and they were calling you Uncle Jim, but I imagine you were actually great Uncle Jim. That these aren't your 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 brother's kids; these are these are their kids' kids. That's true. I I didn't think about that, but yes, yes. So, yeah, they don't. I guess I yeah. That's a good point. Shoot, now you now you made me feel older. No, no. The thing is that what, what's so cool about it is that this younger next generation is looking at you exactly the same that I, same way that I looked at you saying, you go bigger than everybody else. We're trying to keep up with you. So, I mean, I, to me, this is the greatest sense of success that you could possibly have is that you've had numerous generations that have been chasing you and none of them have caught you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I just, yes, thanks, Chris. I just... I really enjoy it, and you know, I I get in that those terrain parks with those kids, you know, and and they're still pretty young, so they're just kind of learning it. So, and then as soon as I ski into the terrain park, you know how it, terrain parks are really uh, weird because all these people stand up there with their skis and their snowboards, and they're all just like waiting to go, and they're going to cut in front of everybody. But as soon as I get there, it stops. Everybody <laughs> stops. Nobody moves. Nobody moves. They go, what's this guy doing up here? Look at, he's really old and he's sitting down with this one ski. 
And it, it's just funny. I go, Is it, can I go? Yeah, you go, you go. Yeah, they all start chanting. And then I get down, you know, same old thing. They come up to you and, oh, that was awesome. You know, I probably went a foot off the ground, but it, they, I did it. So I don't, I don't think you're going a foot off the ground. I've seen you do this. You're about 20 feet off the ground at one point and then you land on the on the downside you seem to be pretty good at this and and it's still you're hanging in there now i mean it's not no no bad aches and pains or any of that stuff um yeah i've got some aches and pains um my shoulder hurts every once in a while it goes back and forth you know I, in the x games they broke my collarbone and my scapula you know and that when that fall there um so that, that thing irritates me once in a while but it's the life We'll have to get that into, get to that in a second, but can we go back? How did this how did this all start? How did how did you get into sports in a wheelchair? I mean, you lost your legs in Vietnam. I'd imagine that's that's the beginning of it. Yes, you know, Chris, it's really fun to look back at that. And um, with this with this uh, COVID virus thing going on, I've had a, a lot of chance. I get out and do a lot of stuff. I got a yard, work, I ride bikes, and do all kinds of things, but. I've been putting my scrapbooks together that I've collected over years. You know, I've got all this stuff and you know, you, I don't know why I'm putting it together, but I guess it's for my kids and my grandkids or whatever someday. But um, when I, as I look back, what really happened was it was easy to build and start wheelchairs and sports products for persons with disabilities because if you think about it, in 1968, the lightest wheelchair weighed 60 pounds, maybe a little bit more. The lightest cushion weighed 25 pounds. Yeah, and I remember uh, getting all that stuff. And also, I got prosthetics, and I was doing all this stuff. I was just trying to figure out life. Um, I was 21 years old. Uh, I'd been blown up in Vietnam. And now, I, I wanted to get out and start working out. And this, when you watch Forrest Gump, it's it's kind of exciting. A lot of people think that I should be Lieutenant Dan, but I actually relate better to Forrest. Uh, and when he started running, that that was what really changed for me. I started playing wheelchair basketball, but the one thing I like to do is interact with able-bodied people. I wanted to be no different than anybody else. I just wanted to do my thing. So long story short, I started these you know, one milers, two milers, five Ks, you know, whatever race, working towards a marathon. And I liked it because I could go out and run with hundreds of people, even though I was in a wheelchair. And now I could just communicate with them. And, and it was just fun. It was just part of um, getting involved and getting back into a normal life. So describe this chair that you started in. I mean, this is like a, what we what we look at as a hospital chair, right? Those stainless steel yeah. Everson Jennings. It, it was it was made by stainless medical products. It was a stainless chair rather than a, a chromoly chair with aluminum. And so I liked that one because it was maybe sixty pounds, and the other one sixty five pounds. So what we did to get started, what I did to get started was I just went out and used that chair with eight inch casters in the front, 24 inch wheels, pretty bad tires. I, I just I just didn't care. I, I mean, I remember I was living in this house and I remember getting up in the morning and going around the block 
you know, I, I live downtown, there's sidewalks, there's streets. Um, just go around the block and then pretty soon we're around two blocks and pretty soon it's three blocks, four blocks. And, and then just gradually just got better because all I wanted to do was to go in these races with these able-bodied people and try to get better and stay with a different pack. Because back then, a lot of people hearing this will probably recognize, they set it up so if you were doing 15-minute miles, you were back here in the back of the pack. If you're doing 12-minute miles, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. So my goal was to get up to where I could do 7-minute miles. I thought, well, I could do that. So I'd work and I'd work and I'd work and I'd work. And uh, gradually, I just got good at it and went down to Eugene, Oregon, Nike OTC Marathon, 26.2 miles, 3 hours, 3 minutes in a 60-pound wheelchair. No gloves, 8-inch casters. It was flat cores. And when I got to the end of the course, my wife came up and um, and she's good job, good job, and she was all excited. And I go, just hold me. I didn't even, as usual, I didn't drink any water. You know, I just did the whole thing, and it was warm, it was hot, and I just, I, I thought I was going to pass out. It was kind of all black, cloudy, looking around my head, but I, but I made it. So, so three oh three meant that you went just under seven minute miles. Yeah. I, I think know, it was like 6.99 or something like that, which is like an 8.6 mile an hour average. Yes. Yep. It was, it was incredible. That's what, that's what got us to build wheelchairs. Uh, when I say us, there's a friend of mine, my name is Jim Hernandez that helped me, um, you know, help me with a uh, wheelchair design for basketball. So we built six basketball chairs. Then we went down to playing a tournament in Reno, Nevada, and I ran into uh, a, a friend of mine that's a, a paraplegic, uh, Dean Barrett. And Dean was uh, had just done the Miami Marathon with Lewis Bear. And the only way you could find anything out back in those days was sports and spokes. It's kind of like our Sports Illustrated right. for wheelchair athletes. And I saw in there that he and Lewis Bear had beat Rick Hansen in, in this race in Miami. And I thought, yeah, how'd they go so fast? And in the article, he Dean said that I'd figured out, and Lewis said that we figured out how to build a chair that didn't have toe in and toe out. So I'm in this tournament in Reno and guess who's playing in the tournament was Dean Barrett. So I sat with, down with Dean with a piece of paper and just jotted as much stuff as I could, came back home and took this wheelchair that we were making a little bit of camber in the 60 pound wheelchair by putting this device in the cross members. Right. And I took that, took that idea what Dean said and we built our first racing chair and man it was just like went from 60 pounds to 25 pounds camber in the wheels no toe in no toe out and it just woo and so describe what toe in and toe out is well <clears throat> what we were doing what everybody was doing especially the paraplegic uh, uh, persons with the higher level would dump their chair. They would other get their butt down closer to the axle. 
-hmm. Okay, so they have a, they, they somehow they would put a bigger sling in the seat. They somehow they would lower it and then they would camber the wheels so you wouldn't burn the inside of your arms when you're pushing. So they try to get themselves down. So as soon as they messed with the chair wheels that were going like this, straight them down, they cambered them like this, but they dumped the back of the chair, they introduced toe out. So now they're going down the road scuffing. They're scuffing the whole way down the road. So the wheels aren't parallel anymore. Okay. Yeah, they're not, they're not gliding. So Dean, Dean came up and Lewis came up with that idea. They built their own chair. Um, if you look at old pictures, pretty cool. All of us, we just took aluminum and or chromoly and built the things. And man, what a difference! All at once, you're not you're not pushing like a snowplow or pushing outward. You're just sliding down the road, and what a difference! And I, I mean, it, it it changed. It really changed. Other than when I really learned how to push with um, harness gloves that that you know, that was the biggest change because we were using no gloves or handball gloves with tape on them and and we and then when i got that chair and go wow this is great and then we started messing with the gloves and that changed a lot how did so this sounds like a way that all the technology was working that you were you know this guy dean has an idea and you say oh, okay let's see if i can do this and maybe i can improve on his idea and then somebody else says, well, we'll take these push rims, the thing that you grab onto to make your, to make your, your wheel go and, right. and put on a smaller one. And that it was actually even, I think you guys were using like children's push rims on right. your, on your adult wheels. So it was kind of like going from being in first gear to being in fifth gear kind of thing on okay. your bike. Yeah. And then, you have to also remember that we were also being, um, other than road racing, we were being told what to do with the uh, rules that were coming out of Stoke Manville in England. There was rules you couldn't have, you had to have a foot rest. Yeah, everybody had to have foot rest. You couldn't remove the foot rest. Uh, you couldn't have smaller than 22 inch hand rims. Um, so you had to, you had to have push, push somebody push handles in the back of your chair. Uh, they they wouldn't let you cut those off, so everybody they were trying to keep everybody in in Everson Jennings chair, but what changed was road racing. Now once there was no rules, the, the rules were being tossed out. I mean there was a few rules because those guys couldn't regulate it, or why why were they tossed out? Well, because we were running in just regular road races, we were running in Seattle Marathon or or a Piala. 5k or the fun run or this and that so they didn't care what we what we were pushing in uh boston had some rules when we got back to boston but you had said something earlier a lot of the credit goes to people like jerry smith who was building top end chairs at that time with george murray's help you had bobby hall uh, you have um, dean dean and lewis dean barrett lewis bear bear um you know, have uh, there's other people that were doing it, so it was just good timing because people all across the United States were doing it Florida, Boston, California, Washington State, and so we're all putting these products together. So, so people are doing this all over the country, 
And then you kind of look in sports and spokes and go, oh, okay. So you're trying to figure out from like a photo or something like that, or, or an article, like, what's this guy doing? How can I, and because, but it, it seemed like it was, it was a community. I mean, it was responsibility of you guys to figure out how to make it go fast. It looks like just looking at this uh, on Facebook, there is a history of wheelchair racing. And just to look at some of these old photos, it looks like one, it looks like a ton of fun. I mean, it looks like everybody was having, having a great time. And you get, you know, it's, it's the seventies. So you get people with the, with long hair and you got the, the headbands and you got people who are showing up and racing in their jeans and, and some people, and then you get other people who are, you know, but it's, but it, it, it looks really, it looks really fun. And then you get people who are saying, oh, okay, well, if we tweak this and if we tweak that, if we, tweak the size of the of the casters the front wheels in front maybe you can roll a little bit faster and what was uh what 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 was that feeling i mean that's what i'm getting out of it i mean it almost looks like like watching it i'm like somebody needs to do a movie about this like the history of this thing it looks just so cool where did you borrow your ideas from where did, where did you get your ideas from uh i i've always been I, as a kid growing up you know, we didn't have a lot of steps, so we would grab some wood and we would put roller skates in the bottom of wood. And we'd figure out a way to take this thing downhill. And uh, I, I don't know, I've just always, I've always tinkered with stuff, um, you know, and it was just easy. I mean, I, I just knew what you said is so true. The stuff we had was terrible. We even wore, finally somebody would tell you, hey, quit wearing jeans, you know, you're you're lose a half a pound of weight if you get rid of the jeans or you know maybe take off those combat boots and wear some sneakers or something you know so, i mean I, I remember even saying that to people i go why do you have all that stuff on land you're not aerodynamic well what's aerodynamic you know but so we build these we build these products but the bottom line was we were all super competitive I mean, trust me, we were really, really, really competitive. I didn't care if I was pushing in a shopping cart. Which is what a lot of this looked like back in the day that you guys were pushing in shot with handles on the back, with leather, like leather backing on, on your wheelchair seat, with, you know, with these yeah. casters, the, the front casters are like, are the same width, if not more than the, mm -hmm. than the ones that, than the back wheels. So it's like this, it's like this truck that you're trying to push. And what you just said was, that a lot of people would put a sling, a bigger sling in their seat because they, and they'd push in a folding chair. You know, we didn't have rigid chairs. So they put a bigger sling in the seat so that they get, get down deeper in the chair. So you're, you're kind of all of us were sneaking around trying to figure out a way to break the rules. Like when I built my first chair, if you looked at it, I know I have a picture on here somewhere, but I, I welded two little foot plates on the front because I, you couldn't use that chair without the foot plates. And before every single race, they would come up with a yardstick. And they would, that yardstick had the height from the butt, from the seat rail to the ground, and from the foot, the back. They let us, they let us get rid of the push handles, but you still had to have the back height at a certain height. So this yardstick had this, and they'd come up and right before the race, they'd stick it you know, you're nervous anyway. And they come in, oh, it looks like you're about a quarter of an inch off. And here you are trying to do this race and some guy's standing with a yardstick 
you know, and it just, it was, it was really, really difficult to, and to make, make things happen. But yeah, when you get to the line, uh, I mean, you were competitive. I, I don't care what the person was pushing, whatever. I really wanted to win every race. And that's just my nature. I, um, you know, what, what I liked about wheelchair racing was, you know, it was me. It was how hard I trained and how hard I work at the sport to make it work. And how hard did you train? I train. I train really hard. I, I, I look at it now. Um, it, it just makes it easier at 73 to keep training because that's just my nature. I just, uh, I actually really like the training. And sometimes I get nervous in the racing. But well, you make it fun too. I remember, I remember training with you, and this is jumping many years in front. Training with you in Seattle, and there were a bunch of us, our whole team, because you're, you know, eventually we'll get to talking about your shop and everything. But your company sponsored a bunch of us, and and you took us on your route, and then you said, well, we're going to climb this hill. And what? How how far did we climb? Did we climb like a mile, two miles? One mile hill. One mile hill. So we climbed all the way up. And the reason why we climbed all the way up, well, I mean, obviously there was, there was a bit of competition as we were climbing up, but we climbed up so that we could turn around and try to go 50 miles an hour going down the hill. It was that steep a hill. Absolutely. And the only person I ever went 50 was Jeff Merald. <clears throat> I'm not, it's, I, and if, if people can hold me to this when they watch this, you, it is almost impossible to go 50 plus in a wheelchair i don't there's a point where i don't know what it's called but it's all aerodynamics and stuff but man i mean i've done lots of 47s and 46 and 45 i just cannot get that 50 mile an hour mark i mean we're talking about not pedaling i mean we're gliding in a wheelchair right because you can't you can't accelerate it anymore what was it like i mean because you're you're talking about some of the you know, some of the safety issues. What was it like trying to get into road races when you first started doing it? When you showed up with this 65 pound chair? Oh no, you were in the lighter one, the 60 pound chair. At first, I wish I still had some of these, but at first you couldn't even, they wouldn't even let wheelchairs in the race. At least some of the races, they actually had a, a no roller skates, uh, no wheelchairs and something else. I can't remember what it was, but it, there was, it actually was on the, on the registration form. And so I would call the race director and I'd say, Hey, really, I would like to get in. I would enjoy this. And I was starting to get some notoriety on here because, you know, I was doing a difference. So you're getting articles and paper. And I did a big March of Dimes thing where we did a bunch of miles and a big article in the paper. And it, and that article talked about me wanting to be involved in road racing and running with other people. I call it running because I don't know what else to call it. So make a long story short, Club Northwest was the big running place. And I mean, I, I was getting really good at this point. I was getting to the point where I could start in the front of the, and the runners, right with the runners and win the race. Uh, or if I didn't win it, I'd lose it to two people. So you'd gone from seven minute miles down to, below six minute mile kind of thing is that even, even lower really uh, that it, it depending on the race course um i did the uh race from uh seward park to madison park 
and and I won it. And they had no prize the, for the first person in a wheelchair, but they had a prize for the winner. And the winner got a free trip to Honolulu, Hawaii to do the marathon. And we were doing the marathon at that point in Hawaii too. Uh, and and they wouldn't give it to me. And I go, uh, you know, I, and rather than fighting or make a big deal, I said, well, why don't you put a wheelchair division together next year and and we'll get some wheelchairs and come back. So, so you know, I was always fighting, but getting back to Club Northwest, uh, Bill Rowe in uh, Bless His Heart, he, he could not stand wheelchairs. He was really good friends with uh, the New York Marathon. Uh, oh, with Fred LeBeau. Fred LeBeau, thank you. Fred LeBeau, him and Fred were like really tight. Uh, Fred's, Fred was older, but Bill, Bill, um, he fought me in these races, and he was ahead of that race, the, in charge of that race from Madison Park or from Seward Park to Madison Park, and and when, so I tried to work with him, and it gradually was better and better. In 1981, he was the announcer at the Boston Marathon, in the tower, in that big tower at the Prudential Center. And guess who came in first in the wheelchair and first overall? It's Jim Martinson. And Bill and, and, and Bill is up there and he's going, oh yeah, and we have our own Washington State, Puyallup, Washington, Jim Martin. Now he's like, whoa, look at this. You know, he's all excited. And I, I, it made me laugh because it went from, I don't want wheelchairs around to now it's like, wow, this is really cool. We got a Washington State athlete winning the Boston Marathon wheelchair division. What was his issue with the with the wheelchairs? Did he think that they were unsafe? Did he think that they weren't actually running or what was his issue? He thought it was unsafe. You know, he thought that um that, you know, we were gonna get tangled up with the runners or so on and so forth. Uh rather than coming up with a way to make it work, you know, he as there's always a way to make it work. Um, just you know setting if there's enough wheelchairs you start them a minute or two ahead of the runners you don't have to start them 10 minutes uh, you know and as the runners pass the slower ones you know everybody just feeds in and it's not even a problem but you know it was brand new everything was brand new every everything we would do in the wheelchair division was brand new and you know I started racing in 1976 77 so that's a long time. I raced for 20, 22 years, 21 years. Did you really? Wow. Thousands of miles, exactly. Well, you had brought up a point where we were training on Flaming Geyser Road. That was the road we would go out. And, that's, and that was in 1996 because I was, trying, I was still training to make the uh, Paralympic team in, in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And Scott Hollenbeck, we were we were going out there, and you guys were all dropping me. But I mean, I I was fit. I knew I was fit. Oh, I don't think I was dropping you. Yeah, everybody was, and 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 I, and um, Jeff Morales and Scott and you and and uh, Chad Guzman and Don Dowling and yeah, uh, yeah, they're all there. And Don got it. Scott stopped. And he said, Jimmy, he says, you got the harness glove, but you're still trying to use the old push. And I remember this specifically. 
it, we went from where we stopped to the to the turning round point, and so we all you know we all talked and we took off and I changed my stroke from getting too much. It's all different push now, but I was gripping a little bit too much in the thumb area. Right not between the thumb and index finger. Right. Yeah, rather than just letting the back of my hand just do the work. I mean, I went from like drop getting dropped to dropping everybody. It was that quick. It was, I mean, so I knew I was fit. It was that, you know, it was that technique that Olaf guy from Sweden, I can't think, I can't pronounce his name. He was the one that brought that over and John Brewer and the backhand. Exactly. So, so the push is really like a, like a friction thing. You don't actually, if you grab the wheel, you're slowing the wheel down in order to accelerate it. But this is almost like a tangential punch where you basically punch into the ring and, and rubber on the back of your hand and rubber on the push ring. So the friction creates that, creates that, that, uh, that connection. And, and so you can accelerate the ring. And so this is what you ended up doing. And that was a harness club. Now they're even, even more techy. They're actually building little things that I never got to that level. Uh, that changed after I quit, but yeah, where it's, where it's a molded, a plastic molded, uh, yeah. plastic molded glove. And you actually do put that same rubber on the outside of it, but your glove doesn't deteriorate the way that those leather and rubber ones were, where you had to break them in and then you get them just right. And you hope that they stay just right for a little while. And then, then they start to break down and you have to break in another pair, but going back to, so you won Boston in, in 1981, right? 1981. And then the next year you were the defending champion. And, and, it, and that's where, that was the year of the crash, wasn't it? So that was another year later. Cause I, I, you know, I, I, everything you did, you had to pay your own money. Right. Uh, obviously, to get I was building and starting a wheelchair company. So, you know, and then I also had three children and a great wife and, you know, everything. So you, you had to balance everything. It was always a balancing act for me. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was not that year. It was the year after. Uh, I was 80, 80, I was second. 81, I won it. And 82, I didn't go. And 83, I think it was. 83 when when that crash was happening and you were right there right so it was Kanab who went over first and you were right behind him weren't you yeah and he's watched him I'm going oh man this is not going to end up really good and I mean he was just I'm just sitting there because you know he was he was supposed because he had won it the year before okay Jim Kanab okay yeah and uh I'm going wow this what what's going on here and I actually watched every inch of that thing go over. And I'm going, okay, let's see. I got to go right or left. I don't know. And and I went one way and he went the other way. I mean, when he fell over, he spun, you know, like this. And he was sliding. So I just darted. I can't remember which way I darted. And then a uh, bunch of guys. So I took off and I thought, well, this is going to be easy. Uh, doggone Andre Vijay, he came by me with snots coming out of his nose and his ears. He was, sweat was pouring off. I'm going, holy mackerel. And uh, he beat me. He freaking beat me. And I had about a quarter mile head start of me because he actually flipped over. They had to set him upright. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah because there blood. were a ton. This was a NASCAR wreck. This was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
And it changed the rules, right? Up yeah. until what? It's like three or four years ago, five years ago, maybe, or something like that. They had a controlled start yeah. at Boston because it starts on a downhill. And this is a downhill where you can get close to 40 miles an hour. Some of those people mm-hmm. like the Ernst Van Dykes and some of those guys might actually be going 40 miles an hour on that hill. And this is where the wreck happened. So they used to keep you at 15 miles an hour. They had a truck in front and you had three, four, five, six lanes of, of nine people across or whatever, just staying behind this truck until you got to the first uphill and then they pulled off and then the race really started. I never liked that. I thought that was just because of the wreck. I thought that was stupid, but they did change it now. So I think they don't, do a controlled start anymore i think no they don't no i think it's been like five years or so i mean you know it 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 it's one of the things that irritates me about being disabled they always try to keep us in a box you know and they you're going to break the poor guy well they don't realize that we work our butts off and sometimes the sometimes a guy needs that start off the front because that's the type of person the way he races where another guy is better on the hills and you know some people are better at top speed obviously these young men and women are racing now are just so fast uh i went back and did the hundredth running of the boston uh, yeah so that was was 96 right so that was the hundredth 96 or 97 I think it was 96, right? So it would have been 96 because they started in 1897. So so it would have been 96. And I I did that in one hour and 32 minutes. So, you know, so if you look at it, when I won the Boston, it was one hour 57 minutes. And now I'm at whatever age I am at 96. I must have been 50. Yeah. so I, you know, that was one hour, 32 minutes. So you went 132 in 1996. I think so. I think, yeah, well, I know it was 132, but I think it was 96. So, I mean, I did well. I was in the top six or seven. That's why I wanted to do the, um, get, make, make the team in Atlanta, because I think that was the same year. So that was the same year. Exactly. And you mm-hmm. ran the, you ran the marathon there. Right, which was a super hilly marathon. Well, it wasn't that. It, it we hit that stupid, oh, that uh, humidity. Just I mean, we. I mean, I remember going, and I was in the top three or four right there, and top two actually. And I, I'm, I'm coming up, and I see this huge, massive, monstrous cloud, and I thought, what is that? And it was just this. I went from grip to zero grip, and I didn't think I was ever going to get back to the finish line. I was slipping so bad. Oh, that was frustrating. That, 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 I've had, you know, I've had too many bad stories along with the good ones, you know, so I don't know why I keep doing it. I guess it's my stupid never give up attitude. That's exactly it. Well, we talked about the, so you have the rubber on the back of your gloves and the rubber on the push rim. And when it gets wet like that, it's like, it's like having baking grease and you go to, (laughs) you go to push and you put, you put effort into it and your hand just slides right off. And then on the push ring, you've taken a tire, a tubular tire. So, so a tire, a regular bike tire 
that has a tube inside of it. So it's what we call a sew up. So it's all, it's all one and you cut that apart and you glue that onto the push ring. And that thing is like a saw when, when you go and hit it with your arms. Cause then, cause you go and slip with your hand and then your elbow goes and gets right into it. And then, so then you've got all these stripes on the inside of your inside of your elbow and it's, it's the worst and most frustrating thing. So you went from, from being in the top two to just barely making it to the finish, unfortunately. It was ugly. I was sore. I was sore on that marathon than any, any I remember. And it wasn't. It wasn't because of the because the turnaround must have been the halfway mark. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. But yeah, it's um, the sport. The sport to me is is it's hard to explain. It's it's a really, it's a great sport. There's, it's only you and a piece of light equipment. And I don't know, it's just, it's an incredible sport. It, I can't even describe it. As much as I've liked every other sport I've ever been involved with, it's just hard to beat wheelchair road racing. So is wheelchair road racing your favorite versus skiing? Yeah, I love skiing. I mean, I, I love skiing because I can do it at 73 at 80 or you know i, I can do it at 100 if i just won't know what mountain i'm on <laughs> so uh but i i uh it's a different sport um uh, ski racing you were good at it because you would memorize the course and i'd i'd get bored and they take off and i could remember where to turn and if i made the turns i could win the race the trouble is sometimes i go too fast and then, oh, there's the gate over there. How did mono skiing come about? Because you were you were at the forefront of mono skiing, and what was your thinking when you're when you're developing this thing to go out and ski? When you're got a wheelchair, why should you ski? The biggest reason, the the biggest reason is I really wanted to um, get to the mountain with my children. You know, Justin was my youngest, Jeremy and Julie, and um, so what what happened. Chris, um, was I would, act, now remember, a lot of people don't know it because I wear prosthetics. Even when I won the Boston Marathon, I only had one wheelchair, the racing chair, which is smaller back then, and my prosthetics. So I walk on, you know, take my legs off, go out and train and, you know, do whatever I do and get on the plane when I won the marathon and go home and then get off, walk off the plane. And the, back then, the Everybody could go out to the airport. We had about 150 people there and the media. And they go, where's Jim Martz? And where's Jim Martz? Because everybody walking off the plane was from the Boston Marathon. They all looked like they were walking on prosthetics. Their butts hurt. Their backs hurt. So I, you know, so I walked off. And, oh, there he is over the hall. Well, where's his wheelchair? Well, I don't know. It's probably under the chair. You know, and so I would take my prosthetics and I would walk up to the mountain take my kids up, night skiing, day skiing, especially night skiing, and I'd stand around out there and watch them, you know, and watch them and watch them get better and better and better skiing. And uh, Justin was six and Jeremy was nine and Julie was 12. And uh, so finally- and skiing I, had been a big part of your growing up, right? It's what yeah, you and your brothers did and all of that. Yeah. And I love skiing. I, 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 had I not got hurt, I would have been involved in the ski industry somewhere, whatever I would have been involved, whether it's, you know, patrol or, you know, who knows where I would have gone. So what, what ended up happening 
was um, uh, there again sports and spokes. There was a national ski championship in in uh, Michigan, the nationals, and I saw the magazine came out and it had Peter Axelson. Okay, and he had made a mono ski. And so I did some research. Now remember, research wasn't like Google or anything like that. You had to do a lot of phone calls. So I called some guy in Michigan and goes, Yeah, I know the guy that worked with Peter and built this mono ski. And um so we uh so I, I, I made some phone calls and I don't know if I talked to Peter or not, but Peter wasn't gonna manufacture it. Peter actually made the Moski, so he was way even ahead of me. But he, he designed the whole thing, and he's yeah. an engineer too, right? Oh, Peter was an engineer, yes. had been at the Air Force Academy, and then and then transferred to Stanford. Really yes. smart, technical guy, did all the math and all that stuff. Incredibly intelligent, yeah. Just way uh, he's an engineer. I'm a make something happen type guy, and I knew that if I was going to make anything i always wanted to make it so every, everybody else could use it if i was going to build it for an amputee i'd build it different i built it always for people that had legs paralyzed that could compete with me so i i, I got a hold of him i got a hold of somebody and they go well the guy that was made the made it is or had something to do with it is jamie mccormick so i go wow how do you get all that guy and believe it or not he lives in Puyallup, Washington, and that's where I live. And I go, no way. He lived up at Thunfield. At, at, it's an airport up there at Thunfield. So I got a hold of Jamie, and I said, Jamie, let's build a monoski. So we went out, or actually he went out and bought a monobob, and that was made in Germany. It's a great big tub with a leaf spring, a pin. You'd be you'd be on one side. Another guy would be on the other side. He'd grab me, pick me up, put me on the chair. Okay. And, and when that sit in this tub on top of this leaf spring. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when you pulled the pin out, the leaf spring would fall down. And then they'd sit you on top of this, this chair. Lift. So, so I, I, um, um, I got a hold of Jamie and Jamie said, yeah, let's do that. So we took it. Now I had a little bit of a shop going and things were going pretty good. So I said, let's take, let's take and put a shock. Now the reason we use a shock because motorcycles, dirt bikes were coming out with a mono shock. All right, mono shock was new, and they were pretty cheesy. They didn't, they were not like the mono shock that I ski on today or the one you ski on. They had oil to air. So obviously, when it got really cold out, the shock didn't work very well. It got really warm out, the shock worked really well. You know, so, but. But we stuck that in the bottom of this tube, this this monobob, big thing. We just drill a hole in there, put a piece of aluminum in there, drill, and couldn't get on a chairlift, but oh, that was cool. So we skied that and it was really good. And then it just kind of progressed from there to there. So we and now now what's my whole goal was to be able to get on the chairlift independently, okay, ski independently, get off the chairlift independently and ski you know blue runs green runs just ski with your kids as they were growing up yeah i didn't care 
I, I, I didn't even think that I'd be up on chair six, dropping off a cornice and skiing down something that was way too tight, you know, and I, but that wasn't my goal. My goal was to be skiing with my children and to make it for other people. And that, you know, that's why I like this picture. I don't know if you could see that. Yes, definitely. That's Bob Mazur, Chris Waddell, Jim Martinson, Peter Axelson. Is it Peter yeah. or is it Sarah in the back there? That's Peter. Oh, is it Peter? Okay. Yeah. And it's funny. I just found that today. And it, it, it just meant so much to me to be able to have guys like you and Bob skiing in, in my product that I made and, and knowing that you were a skier and that Bob was a skier. And, yeah, and both of us broke our back skiing. Yeah. yeah. Last year, I was supposed to ski with Bob, but he got um, something happened to him. We were at Vail. And, uh, yeah, he hurt he his was, shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. He just had shoulder suit. And, and when I skied, I was doing the Jimmy Huga Express. And Bob, I called Bob and I said, he had already had my mono ski and he skied for all. And I said, I want to meet you at Vail. And Jimmy Huga Express runs. You get on the chair, you go up as fast as you can. It was for raising money for AMS. And you go up and down, up and down. And so I I got a hold of Bob and Bob said, follow me. So we skied down and we stopped. And he said, stop here. He says, see that spot right there? I go, yeah. He said, that's where I broke my back. Let's go. He broke his back and he had to show me that spot and he takes off. I, you know, and it just, you know, it just, taking somebody that loved the sport like you and I did and be able to do it. We do it different, but doggone it, it's still fun. It is. I mean, I think, I don't know if you think this, but I think that's the greatest thing that you've done for the sport and for this community is to, is to give them, give them some equipment to be able to use to, to do what they want to do, but also just introduce them to the excitement of it. How did, how, how did you start the, the shop? How did you start? So it was, so it was shadow magic in motion. I was sitting at the kitchen table with my wife. This is a, it's a big deal because first of all, um, if you look back in the seventies, um, you know, 76, 77, there, there were, they didn't think there was any disabled people. Okay. The world didn't think there was any, and sure. if they were, they were in a nursing home, you know, Vietnam was, changing that a little bit because there's a lot of people surviving serious injuries like myself but still nobody believed that especially the banks no they did not believe they would loan me money to manufacture sports products for persons in wheelchairs okay now i'm not talking about we built a really cool everyday chair i loved it and still think it's the best one ever um but um but the the weird part was when I go to those people to get money, I couldn't do it. I own my house, obviously the bank owned my house, and I, I had to, I had to use my house as collateral. I was sitting at the kitchen table with my wife, her sister, and I said, "Well, I'm going to do this because we were building a few chairs for basketball, like I said earlier, a couple of racing chairs." And so I said, "I'm going to do it. Let's do it." And my wife was supportive, and we came up with the name Magic in Motion. Quickie was building, it was called Motion Designs at that time. 
and they were building a quickie chair. Now this is because they called you magic though, didn't they? Is that, is that how yeah, this worked? Uh, yeah, that, I, uh, that somehow that name came up, but um, <laughs> there's no magic here. And so- Oh, I don't know, I disagree with that. So here, here's what I, here's how it worked. I went over to JNL Fabrication, Louis Shekjeff, and I said, Louis, let's do this. You build the chairs, you know, we had a design, you build the chairs, he built a fixture so he could build them. Um, I went to Chris, uh, Chris Davies, and I said, Chris, you work for a bike shop. I'm gonna buy 100 rear wheels, 100 hubs, Phil Wood hub. Phil Wood was making hubs. Gary Kerr worked for Phil Wood. Gary was paraplegic, good racer. Uh, so then I bought all the spokes at length. Uh, so I take all these spokes and all these hubs and these rims over to Chris Davies. Okay. And Chris in his house on his kitchen table, he's a bachelor. He had a chewing machine and he put all these wheels together. You know, and so I had to go to his house and he had 50 wheels. Can you imagine all that? Spokes and wheels, 700 C's, I think, was the time. So, so what ended up happening was um, he, he built, uh, he would build those, then I'd go get them, and then Louis would build the frame, and then Tacoma Tent Nonning would build the upholstery. And so I went to all these places. And picked all these things up, brought them to my house. I had a garage, two-car garage, and a shop in the back where I assemble everything. And I'd be assembling them. In the morning, uh, in the morning, I'd get up and call East Coast. Uh, and then as I graduated, because you remember, I had to get up at five to call somebody at your place at three, or well, East Coast in Boston or wherever. So I call those people, and then I call Midwest, and then I call. So as the day goes on, I'd run out in the shop and I'd put more stuff together, build product. I'd, at nighttime, I would box all these things up, put them in boxes. And whenever anybody would buy a chair from me, we didn't have the internet. So when people would buy a chair from me, they would have to pay 50% down, 500 bucks for a racing chair, $1,000 for a racing chair, or $1,100, $500 down. And UPS would pick up the box in my garage they picked that box up. They would, they would take it with COD on delivery. And so, Chris Waddell, you'd get your chair. You had to pay five hundred dollars to UPS. They collected my money, so you had already paid me five hundred. So, I mean, so you can imagine. It was just me, and then gradually we just started getting bigger and bigger. So then we moved to a little shop, and then I hired an employee. And then we hired another employee, and then eventually. It grew to be successful. So. And 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 part of what made you uh, what put you in demand was was winning the Boston Marathon, right? In that chair that you built. Yes, that and and that going to uh, basketball tournaments, people saw the basketball chair, the everyday chair, and you know uh, I sell a lot of stuff in Washington, Oregon, California. Uh, you know, I'd go to. The Abilities Expo, which was huge. I mean, that you know, I go there and and we we did some stuff that was so different in the wheelchair or the everyday chair. It was super, super successful because this is a little bit later on, but I had uh, Tim O'Connor, which is a good wheelchair racer. A lot of my guys that worked in the shop were in wheelchairs, and 
probably pretty much the majority of my first. And so Tim was a T4 paraplegic, six foot three. And we didn't have CAD. We were CAD computer, the computer things were just starting to get out. So we took Tim and we designed the chair around him. So we, we gave him a, a somewhat of a dump in the chair or a squeeze or whatever the so the back so the angle of the chair was not flat it was tilted right so the back is <clears> lower <throat> than the front yeah. yeah so you're balanced a little bit against your legs and yeah. you're not falling over on your nose exactly. yes and these are rigid chairs with quick release hubs <clears throat> and 24 inch wheels and uh so we or 26 inch but 24 was the big one still at that point <clears throat> and so we took that chair but we also made sure that they weren't going to the advantage was that Quickie, <clears throat> a lot of people at, at Sunrise Medical at Quickie, at, it was actually Quickie at that time, they, uh, paraplegics or quadriplegics were putting, they were really putting their chair and they were tilting it back like this, which opened the back up, you know. Mm -hmm. And so so now once they're putting so much weight on their, on their issues, they were getting QBI or sores in their tailbone or whatever. So what we did is we dropped, we dumped the chair, but we made a rigid chair. We kept the back at 90 degrees or plus or minus just a little bit. So they weren't tilted way back like that. And then we also pulled their feet in. We pulled their feet in. Now this sounds corny because you're sitting in a 90 degree chair probably sure. or, or 85 or something. We built it, pull it, pull it back to 60 six, or 72 degrees. Up to that point, Narrow, the furthest back was 60 degrees. So we pull it back to six, uh, 72 degrees. And the world, we went to the Bellas Expo. Either the therapist hated us and thought we were stupid and crazy, or they were the progressive ones. They go, this is the coolest thing in the world. I go, yeah, you know why? You can go in the door of an airplane and you can turn around. Yeah. You can turn around inside there. That, not in, not down the aisle, but you could turn around. That was huge. That Shorter was like, wheelbase. Yeah, because it used yeah. to be that your, your footrests were so wide and your feet yeah. were way out in front of you. And so yeah. now what you're doing is you're bringing your feet so much closer to your body. So it's a yeah. shorter, shorter radius. And I mean, just amazing. And when did you start narrowing the, the front? Did you, were you guys yeah, that, progressive in that too? Yeah, that came a little bit later. Um, it was just it was it was so fun to watch this thing progress. We ours we did a, a I'm going to say so you can follow here. We're going to do a, a the hip width was 16 we'll say. Then we had a two inch difference between the hip width and where the frame would bend to go down. So it was 16 here. It was 14 there. Okay. And then so that's where your quads are effectively, or or like closer to where your knees are. More of your knees. Right. Yeah, right there. So so then you go down and then we that was called a single taper. But some people want a double taper, so we go 16, 14, 12. So you can see like 16, 14, 12. And right. Because your shoes, like I generally actually have have a nine inch wide uh where, where my footrest is, because that's how wide my shoes are, is nine inches. That was the outside edge. That was the edge outside. So, so right. you're a little bit different. But now we right. were using chromoly tubing, which is three quarter of an inch 
like that. So <laughs> it, it was just, it was so fun and it, it, everything. And then just going to the racing chair, they, they finally let us use three wheels, but they wouldn't let us have a very long wheelchair. So you had to try to get, I wish I could remember the dimensions, but yeah, this trying to take these guys like yourself that are really long and tall and have long legs and try to put them in and have the wheel not to be sticking out. Now you can put the wheel way out in front of you, but back then we had to have the wheel behind it, behind the frame. Exactly. So it still looked like a wheelchair. I mean, that was kind of the, those were the confines, weren't it? I mean, it's like you have to have four wheels because a wheelchair has four wheels by definition. And, and, you know, and, and yeah, you, you can't get too much longer. Why, why can you have a wheelchair that's, that's longer? It's like, well, because we're, we're actually just going straight on this one. It's designed to go straight. So was the, was the three wheeled wheelchair sort of that progression where it gets into the modern, into the modern chair that we see right now? I I would have to say so. um, Because I, I know Bobby was making one, Bobby Hall and myself. Um, I'm sure Top End was doing something. I, I, the, the big thing they really need is, is to know the dimensions. Uh, what, I mean, what was the ramification? What, what was too narrow? And I, I don't have that or too, too short. The, I think the reason Jim Knob tipped over in that race is because the rules were kept keeping him, us from having long wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. Like, remember I said earlier that Stoke Manville had all those rules that was coming out of England? We didn't have any rules in wheelchair racing, but sooner and later, somebody set some rules and they stopped. That's why you couldn't have a three-wheeler. And then when you did have a three-wheeler, you couldn't have a long one. And hopefully somebody will hear this and give us the answer, but there were some dimensions we had to stay within. Okay. And so Stoke Mandeville, just to back up a little bit, was where... The, the Stoke Mandeville game started back in 1948. So it was after a 12-year hiatus uh, from 36 to 48 for World War II. The Olympics, hadn't, they hadn't competed from Berlin until London. And Stoke Mandeville is in Aylesbury uh, in the UK, about an hour from London, and, and became the Paralympics. And Paralympics literally is parallel to the Olympics. So it started the same day that the Olympics started. And at that point, 80% of paraplegics were li- weren't living longer than three years. And this guy, Sir Ludwig Gutmann, who, who was a neurologist, thought that part of it is you got to get them out of bed. You got to get them moving. And obviously there were, you know, antibiotics and penicillin and, and various things like that that probably were, were helpful as well. But this is where the Paralympics started. And that's why they are the people who are determining some of the rules that are that are moving forward. And one of the rules, there was a big rule, you were talking about how short the chairs had to be, but when they got longer, you ended up adding steering to the to the wheelchair. So like track steering, was that one of the big ones? Yeah, um, I, I appreciate your history on that because that's something I, I know, and they wouldn't let amputees compete until 70, until 70, um, 78 or 79 when we were at, at Holland. This, what, yeah, so they they actually let us compete, but we didn't get to compete with paraplegics. We had to, a little bit. It was really, it was really a mess. Um, you know, the paraplegics wanted to race us as bad as we wanted to race them. You know, we had. Yes, he was fastest, uh, right? 
Yeah. And so you're, uh, the steering, the steer, I tried to use steering on my, my chair. I put little knobs up the side so I could reach down and sit it. They made us actually hold onto the forks when we were steering at first, you know, so when you go downhill and they get the shopping cart shimmy, you can put your hands on each side of the fork. That's how I lost his finger. No, I not really, but that's a good story. Sorry, I could actually use that. So, um, so uh, yeah, the steering came quite a bit later. It was, it was steering was on chairs before the, but I think I, once again, I, I don't have that information. Oh, that's okay. And really more appropriate on the track, right? Because on the track, you go, you go straight for a hundred meters and then you turn for a hundred meters and then you go straight for a hundred meters and you turn and the track steering on a wheelchair, what you do, you have, now you have a little triangle basically that, that is attached to the front, the front wheel. And you hit that triangle on the inside and you've set up with, uh, with wing nuts, effectively, you've set up the arc that you want that turn that, that, that tire to go through, that wheel to go through. And so you hit it on the inside and it turns your wheel, that predetermined amount. And then you come off the turn and you hit it on the opposite side and it straightens the wheel back out. So that's basically, you have what you call your track stops where, where you're in the turn and where you're out of the turn. But early on, you guys had to hip your, hip your, your chair. So you'd push and then kind of, kind of flop your body around to try to get that front wheel, those front wheels point in there to get them to turn. It was, yeah, yeah, and that's that's the, that's where I wished I could tell you what the date was that they allowed that because for quite some time, again, we were back then we weren't using gloves, uh, we were using either handball gloves with tape or or no gloves at all. Uh, Randy Snow, I don't think he ever used gloves, um, you know. So, you know, so somewhere along the line they allowed that to happen, but for you know for a long time it was. You know, you just got to work your, your way around that corner. You do and, it with your body or, or kind of like the rowboat kind of thing where yeah. you sort of push a little bit harder with the outside wheel and, and try to try to go around the turn. It was fun when they finally did the what you described on that track steering. It was unreal. And also on the road, it was really fun too because if you look at a normal road, it's got a crown. And mm-hmm. so if you could typically you're going to be on the right hand side of the road especially training um so the road's crowned so you could just you could have uh, your track your track stop set just a little bit so when you're on the crown of the road you're not drifting off to the right and have to push right hand more than left so or fall off the road yeah, yeah. now so. you competed in in what was i think the first demonstration event right the first in 1984 in LA they had a yeah, 1500 for the men and an 800 for the women, a demonstration event, right? Yeah, I, I, you could not bring that up and it wouldn't hurt my feelings. <laughs> but it had to be one of the coolest events because, I mean, you're talking about getting into road racing because you wanted to be integrated, because you wanted to go fast, you wanted to train hard, go fast, run with these runners, eventually beat the runners. Mm-hmm. But this was this was effectively getting into the Olympics. This was This was yeah. the top of the the top of the mountain and what did it feel like to be in, you know, cause, cause in some ways, I mean, I remember reading a story about you where skiing was a big part of your life and where you went up to crystal mountain because Jean-Claude Keeley, who was one of your heroes who had, who had won 
three gold medals back in won all three races back in 1968 and then was racing at crystal mountain and 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 from what i'd read you ended up leaving because you felt like everybody was staring at this guy in a wheelchair but suddenly then you earned your way into the olympics what was what was that moment like did that feel like you'd arrived or how did how did that work well yes and no it's a it's a bittersweet story because you know, we had to qualify in Nassau County, New York, and uh, and I qualified. There's eight. They take eight people. There's two qualifying meets, and you know, you fight, fight, fight. And Americans. And this is eight throughout America. the world, right? Yeah, and then Americans against Americans. Then pretty soon, you had to do Americans against the world, and I I won the race um, in my division, and you know, so I was the ticket. You know, I was the guy's going to win the this first 1500 meter exhibition in Los Angeles, California in the Coliseum. That's huge. So, you know, and I trained between that and, and then I trained really, really hard. Um, and I, there was nothing against my training. I mean, I had, there's no reason I shouldn't have done better than I did, but I didn't. So I, uh, but uh, when I got there, it was the most exciting thing in the world. We, we were staying in the village we, they were given uniforms, just like the able-bodied athletes. We were treated like the able-bodied athletes. Um, we go to the mess hall, and they had all this great food. And and I mean, I'd I'd go to the track, and Mary Decker, I remember her the most because she'd always run the opposite way on the track. I have no clue why she did that, but I, so she, we were all going the normal way, and she comes and going, "What the world is that woman doing?" Was Mary Decker, you know. She was good and, enough. She could do whatever she wanted to. Zola Bud and that whole group. So right we we right before the race, um, we do some training and I had a kind of had a, a mishap where my left corner of my frame snapped. Oh no. And and I oh god, and I'm just like you know, I I I was devastated. I was scared to death. I didn't know what to do because here I'm in LA and I had already done an up close and personal with Frank Gifford. And um, that was really cool. That's gotta be, I mean, he was, I mean, he did everything, right? I mean, he was, he was a football player, but he, he commented on the skiing. He was, he was like the man. He was, he was, he was everything. Yeah. So I did that and uh, got, uh, got to know Howard Cosell a little bit. And I love that guy. And um, he, uh, and my frame broke, and they already done this thing. So now I'm, you know, they got this all, uh, they got this all figured out before the race. You're going to show this thing about Jim Martins and you got that. Da, da. So my frame broke, and Howard Cosell let me use his um, chauffeur or driver and his, his um, limousine to go to a welding shop to get my wheelchair fixed, which is, thank goodness for that. So I um, I got there, but we talked about toe, <clears throat> toe in and toe, toe out earlier. There was no way to really know what this guy was doing. And I, you know, I was trying to explain to him. So he just, he just welded it up, you know, now whether that, whether or not that hurt me in the race, um, I just could, I just, felt like I was always pushing in cement the whole race. Um, 
I'll talk about that in a minute. So when I went out onto the track, and it, it was it was probably the most emotional moment of my entire wheelchair racing, even more than Boston. I went out there, and we, <clears throat> we were in the Coliseum, <clears throat> and and all these people were chanting USA with their little American flag. <clears throat> and that was the first time, remember I got hurt in Vietnam, it wasn't real popular to come home to Vietnam and, and support your colors and be happy and proud that you're an American because there was a lot of people that believe that we shouldn't have been there. Uh, and however you believe it's fine, but don't mistreat your veterans. And I, I, I felt like for once I was, I was really, you know, it was it was amazing. I mean, it was just chills and back hair standing up. And you were really an American. Ironically, there's a lot of people there because Carl Lewis had just finished breaking the world record in the hundred meter right before we went out. So they were they were walking off the track as we were coming on the track. And oh. uh, so I I um, I got up and gun went off and. Paul Van Winkle took off out of the hole, and I thought, geez, nobody's going with him. So I took off and trying to catch him by the first turn, and and I just I couldn't do it. And pretty soon, you know, um, Randy and and Rick Hansen and uh, all these guys were just passing. You know, like I was just, yeah, oh, what's going? So I was pushing, pushing. Well, obviously, I pushed myself right out of the race. I was dead last. And, so fifteen hundred uh, is a metric mile in some ways, right? So it's a um, basically a hundred meters, a little bit more short of a mile, but it's it's the race that they run. So three and a half, three and three quarter laps around the track. Yeah, broke my heart. I mean, I oh. was devastated. I was, and everybody wanted to go out and party afterwards because Randy finished second, and Randy Snow, and uh, um, you know, and and uh, I go, I I just I got to get out of here, and so I. I took off and uh, and ironically, I got on the bus with one other guy and his name was Hermander Holyfield. And, the fighter, and, okay. Yeah, and he, it wasn't right away, but it was, there was a little time I'd left. And, and we were talking and he, and he was all bummed out and I was bummed out. And, and he had finished the fight with the guy from Hungary that he really won the fight but the judges gave it to the other guy and the judge the referee judge referee in olympics is one of the judges i guess and he uh uh he was from hungary the the so the boxer uh, and the, so I, whether that's all true whether that's but i mean that, that it happened because i was sitting on the bus and you got to know him pretty well and and i when I did races in Peachtree, Atlanta, I ran into Hollyfield, and he remembered me, and I remember him. And <laughs> so I may not have won the race, but I made a friend. Wow! So, wow! How did you pick it up after the, afterwards? I mean, this is so it's like it's this huge buildup to the to the best moment of your life, to to feeling like you're completely embraced by the American people and and you're prepared and you're ready and you're the guy to beat and then and then you don't do what you need to do and how do you how do you move how do you go forward from there what 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 did well, you do next i left the chair in the box for about 2 months did you really <laughs> maybe not 2 months but a long time uh it, and uh 
but I, I love the sport so much. I wanted to do it. So I took it and you know, we took it back and tried to figure out what happened and, and built another chair. And when I went back to Atlanta, Georgia for the Peachtree Road Race and, and won it with a four minute pace per mile, which was the fastest anybody ever got at that. At, nobody had, nobody was doing a four minute pace for a 10K at that time. So that's, I did exactly 24 minutes. So, so 2448, right, is, is a four-minute mile for a 10K, yeah. which is an yeah. average of 15 miles an hour. So you'd gone yeah. 8.6 miles an hour back in your very first, uh, first marathon at 303, and now you're yeah. going 15 miles an hour, averaging 15. And, and Peachtree, there, there's a good downhill, but the, you definitely have to earn it, too. There are some uphills. And you got to be smart going in that park. Holy mackerel! Yeah, chicane. And exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I just yeah, I mean, that was that, that felt good. So that was the and first time anybody had gone sub four minute miles for for a ten k. Nobody period. ever done that. Yeah, for a mile yeah. for anything. Okay. No, I, well, I think uh, uh, people had done the mile in four minutes, and one of them was George Murray. Uh, 359 or he he broke it for 358 or 359 for a mile we were doing the mile on the track for a while until they changed the metric so yeah so but yeah uh i hopefully have that story straight but i do remember george doing that and i was really proud of him to go that fast for for three i i think it was the mile i don't think it was the few i think we were actually doing a real true mile True point. mile on the track. So four full laps on the track. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Pretty cool. Pretty and fast. so were you back then when you when you won Peachtree and when you when you broke the four minute mile at P or broke, you know, averaged sub four yeah. minute miles for 10K for six point two miles. Were you back? And then and then what yeah, did you I, where'd you go from there? I just kept, you know, I kept training, racing. I was doing track. I like track. Uh, you know, I go to the VA games and and I was pretty much dominant there. I just, you know, there was a couple of guys that would come out that, but normally uh, it was more for the comradeship and the friendships of the, the veterans. Uh, you know, I was racing uh, nationals, you know, Hawaii. I was racing uh, University of Washington. I was doing road races all over, you know, uh, Wheels of Fire up here. We had a big one. We were actually winning money which was like, whoa, you know, like, and, and again, uh, when that day that I won that 1984, when I won that um, race in um, uh, Peachtree, I, I almost missed the ceremony because I was fitting two other people for racing chairs. And so, you did this all the time. I mean, you were traveling yeah. around and you were, I mean, you were, you had to be one of the greatest ambassadors of the sport. You were on the ground fitting people and getting them in and getting them excited. Oh, you're going to go so fast with this. And yeah. is, is that really to you? Is, is that, is that your legacy with the sport? Yeah, I really think so. And, and even when I sold the company to Sunrise Medical, uh, my favorite thing would be go fit people at the tennis matches or fit people at skiing or, you know, whatever it was. It, it, it meant my, it, what meant a lot to me uh, junior nationals, uh, nationals, whatever. 
I wanted to see people have a good piece of equipment that fit them well. You know, Barry Ewing was doing a great job at it. Um, you know, uh, all, all of the people that were building this stuff were out there working at it. And my goal was to get that person in the chair and then I would love to get on the track with them and teach them how to race, teach them how to push. I'd get behind them and I'd say, hit me, hit me with your hands. So they, these little kids, they'd, you know, I, Carlos Molita, when he was at the hospital up here, he came down to my shop and he had his bullet hole in his leg with all this hardware sticking out, put him in a racing chair and we took off, you know, and he'd never done it before. He's brand new injury, paraplegic. Um, you know, so I mean, every there, every story, every wheelchair to me meant a story for somebody to get get on with their life, and that's the whole key to get on with your life. You know, go back to college, um, you know, get a job, uh, do whatever you want to do. Sometimes sports will help you get there. It's not. Oh, I I agree a hundred percent. Yeah, is it what's kept you young? I mean, Jim. I, I don't know how you do it. You said you're 73 years old, but I think you still you still have the the the, the mind and the ambition of like a 15 year old of like, oh, that looks like fun. Let's go do it. I think that's a good question. I think what keeps me young is is uh, when I feel when I feel good and I'm and, and I'm real fortunate and think my health is good, you know. Yeah. And uh, when your health's good and you can exercise, you might as well do it. Um, I I don't have a lot of wheelchair guys around here that I work out with a few, but most of the time they're just regular guys on hand side or regular bikes and I'm on a hand cycle. <laughs> so I make it happen. It's just, uh, uh, it's fun. And, and I, some of the guys get mad at me because I'm always trying to beat them. <laughs> you know, but that's I, just, I know exactly how you work. You're always trying to beat them. That's, that's, it's always a race, isn't it? Yeah. But you're, so. you're you're not afraid to do things. Do you remember when you called me up and said, "Hey, I want to get into the X Games. Can you get me into the X Games?" I do. I wish you would have said no. I said, "Well, I said that, that's no problem at all. I'm sure we can make this happen." And and so the X Games, the the Monoskier X, it's basically like motocross on skis. So you have. You have the horse gates that that open. Everybody everybody goes out. So you've got your hole shot, which having been a sprinter, you were you were pretty good at the hole shot, uh, yeah. getting out in front of people. But then it had all sorts of whoop de doos and bank turns and big jumps and and tabletop jumps and all of these things. And so, what what made you want to do that? What made you want to go and do the X Games at sixty or sixty five or whatever it is? I had to be, I, I must have been 60. Uh, what year was it? Yeah, it had to be. So I, I think what happened, um, there's a friend of mine by the name of Jeff Livingston, he's paraplegic, and we ski together, and I really li like Jeff. He's a grumpy old guy, but he's, he's, he's younger than me, but I, I think the world of him. And um, every year he'd say, you know, you ought to do the X Games. I go, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. You know, this would have been like five years before. No, no. You had to do it, Jim. Nobody's going to be. And then other people that saw it say, yeah, you could do that, Jim. You would be really good at it. You know, and then finally I just said, okay, 
I said, I'll do it. And I said, I got to get in because I can't think of the guy's name was a race director. Kevin Jardine, who was the head coach of the, of the ski team. So, and they let me in and, and, uh, uh, fortunately I took my son out, Jeremy, my kids would travel with me a lot growing up to different areas, ski racing and wheelchair racing, which was always fun. So, and then Jeremy and I were working at it, and I, uh, I had my own mono ski, but I didn't feel that I could do. And, and this is no exaggeration. I didn't feel that my mono ski would handle a sixty foot jump. And and, and, and so that this is, is sixty no feet distance wise, but you're as high as twenty feet, feet off the ground, high, forty feet over the table. So you right. were sixty. Yeah, and it, it was just, you know. Uh, great landing straight up and down which is makes it so you're shocked it so i i i did the cardinal sin and i knew better um i got a hold of uh the hawk ski and he actually came out and and made sure because i broke it a couple times in practices you know and he said nobody could ever break it but his ski was much better made than mine you know I love mine. I still ski on mine, but his was made out of bellet aluminum and machine. If anybody's ever seen it, the problem was I skied about an inch and a half taller than I normally ski, but I didn't change my outriggers. So I was, when you do whoop to do's, I was always reaching forward on my, on my, I was reaching forward all the time. Uh, and I, so I wasn't sitting up straight. You need to get upright going to those whoop doos because it'll send you on your nose. So part of that was kind of my mistake. And, and, you know, I made the course a couple of times and, and Jeremy said, dad, he says, the, the, you can't do this over here. This, the big jump is at the end. You came around a chicane, came out here. And I thought, ah, I can make that. So I tried to, and I jumped in and I augured in and, flipped and let's flip this way broke this bone here and broke my scapula which is hard to break i'd imagine it's painful too yeah your shoulder blade Uh, i should have stayed home (laughs) but so amazing i tell people all the time that that if you hadn't crashed because you crashed in training that you probably would have won yeah we were on our fourth run training you know you know, it 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 was dangerously wicked. I mean, it's not manufactured for a model, for a guy sit skiing. Honestly, I don't care how. I mean, you just have to have you have to be really brave to do it. Seriously, I mean, I you know I I every part of that course had something to make you nervous about the whoopie doos, yeah. the you know going up in the chicanes, jumping over a road that that's you know as wide as a snow cat you had to jump from one side to the other side yeah so a gap road. jump right so you have and to jump over yeah huge gap jump all i could think about is is uh why coyote chasing the road runner and sticking in the wall on the opposite side that's all i could think about i go god you know jeremy goes my son he goes dad that's 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 a piece of cake I go, piece of cake, Jeremy, I'm the one sitting in this thing. You know, there's not, the difference between having a leg and having a shock is your legs have a whole bunch of 
this thing up here is telling your legs at different levels to do different things. You know, you can tighten up, you can get lower, you can get taller. You know, but a mama shock, you're totally dependent on on the rebound and the, the bump and et cetera, et cetera. So and and on less travel, right? I mean, you have you know two, three inches of travel, something like that. And so, uh, but I mean, to me, it's it's been a great showcase. And one of the cool things about the X Games is that on that on that mono skier X course, you have the regular skiers who are on that same course. So they have with their they have their two skis. Then you have the snowboarders on the same course. And it's like you guys are all doing the yeah. same thing. Yeah. You're just you're just using a, a different vehicle yeah. to do the same thing. And, and it's it's cool to see just how much uh how, how much respect you get. I remember one year that I was there, and this was not you weren't there that year. And Darren Rolfs, who had won won at Kitzbühel American Downhiller, I mean, he's amazing, amazing skier who was skiing, uh skiing in the X Games. And he ran up because he wanted to watch the finals of the mono skier X. And it was actually, it was just the semifinals, but, but he wanted to, he didn't want to miss it. And to me, that's, that's like, that's the respect that you're talking about. Like with, with the, with the 84 Olympics, that's what you're talking about. The respect of the Boston marathon and, and so many of these things. So what do you, what, what do you do now? What's what, what, Uh, what keeps you busy? Oh, you know, uh, I like I like yard work. Believe it or not, okay. uh, I have uh, five grandchildren, which I love the pieces. And now they got all these things, and they're all pump tracks. Uh, my oldest is fourteen. My uh, youngest is a year old, and uh, so then I have a, a five-year-old that hurts himself every week. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, and it's, uh, they, I go, just, I love to hang around with them because they're always, they're all skiers and bike riders. And it's amazing. Those little bikes that they learn how to ride, but they don't have training wheels. They go, uh, from a bike, you actually use your legs like the Flintstones and they coast. Oh, yeah, and they yeah. go right there. Now he's just, he's riding all these tracks and the bumps. And so it just, so a lot, a lot with the grandkids and my wife, um, you get out like, and ride your bike with the grandkids. Do you get on the floor and wrestle with them and stuff like that too? Yeah, that's, yeah I still beat them up. Barely. <laughs> they can gang uh, up on you though. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I do that. I ride, I have a mountain bike. I've been playing around with that. Uh, I actually cheated. I have a power assist, a uh, little electric, whatever they call that thing. Little I don't, I try not to use too much power because I like the exercise, but some of the places I go, you really, it, it really makes it so I can get up. I mean, yesterday we did 14 miles of gnarly stuff. You and know, what was and it? Three, 3,600 feet of, of climbing yeah, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. I mean, I, I, I'm really sore today <clears throat> and I work out a lot too. Um, so, you know, that was kind of fun. Um, I like the part. I love going downhill on that thing. I mean, the guy in Colorado um, that built it, um, Jake O'Connor. Uh, yeah, you know, Jake. He did a. I mean, if if anybody's gonna break that bike, I would have broke it by now. I did break one little thing, but it was because a stick got jammed in there. But um, 
but I, I, unreal. Un, I mean, it, it, it's a piece of work. And going downhill, it's like, like scary fast. I think my battery's going to go dead on my phone. Is it okay? Well, just just mention your your other passion because you, uh, when you get into something, you really get into something. I mean, to the point where, you know, you, you couldn't open your hands in the morning when you were training or whatever, and because uh, they were so sore and beaten up from the day before. But but there's a new passion, and you've gone back to back to your prosthetic legs too, right? Oh yeah. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. I was wondering where you're going with that. Um, you know, we were so blessed to have video and and things you could watch. And uh, about eight years ago, well, I started I, I started golfing in a paragolfer. I started golfing in a solo rider before paragolfer was out. And then, um, well, it was probably out, but I didn't know about it. And then I, I went to the paragolfer, which I absolutely loved because it stood you up for paraplegics and amputees. Yeah, it stood you up right. Um, and then I saw on the internet, that they were making, Autobach was making these legs for bilateral uh, above knee, as me, two legs off above the knees. And I was watching these guys and they were just killing it on their walking ability. And I just, I go, wow, this is phenomenal. So I went back to VA, got fitted for some prosthetics, uh, got the C leg and uh, uh, just trying to become a really, really good walker is as good as these young guys that are given these legs, and it's 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 a huge challenge. I love it. Uh, there's, I, but you I also have, play golf on them, right? I mean, that's yeah, that's part of the reason you're walking on the prosthetics, isn't it? So you can play golf anywhere you want to go. Yes. And the golfing helps my walking. So the golf, the golfing, the legs help my golfing, but the golfing helps me. But I was as good a golfer in the pair golfer as in with the legs. It's okay. just that it's. it's I didn't have to always put the pair with golfer in the back of the truck, <laughs> you know. So, so yeah. I mean, there's this never-ending challenge for me. I, you know, I, I love it. They they have little stubby legs that we have uh, that you can unscrew the bottom and and I walk around like dwarf golf. I should do that when I putt. That'd probably help. Back to the the Tim 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 Conway. Is that it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so Tim Conway. Is that yeah. politically not correct? I don't know. I don't, well, I he did it. It was about what I just said. Dwarf golf, amputee. Was it dwarf or dwarf? Wasn't it dwarf? Wasn't that his yeah, his name? Yeah, I think it I was. <laughs> anyway, so I might get thrown in jail. No, I don't think you will. But the message. I mean, it sounds like your your message is is that that you keep you keep finding something you love. And and that that pushes you that pushes you to work harder. It pushes you to 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 get better at it, to to innovate, to to do all of these things. Which it, it seems like your your passion from the outside is the thing that's kept you kept you young. I asked that question, and 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 but also just competitive and having fun. Yep, totally. You hit the nail right in the head. You know, family, huge, huge. Family is huge. Uh, having a family, having support, friends like you, so many other people. Um, yeah, and just don't give up, <laughs> period. I mean, it. I've had more than one reason to quit something. But uh, thank the Lord, I'm 
still kicking. Well, still sort kicking of. and still and still leading. So I want to thank you for joining us today, Jim, on Living It. But I also want to thank you for for all of us who have been able to follow in your tracks. I mean, it's just been it's I mean, it's, it's a long, long list of people who've been super successful in their in their sports career who who have followed in your list and, and would call you a hero. So thank you for being a hero for me. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for continuing to inspire people throughout the world every single day. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to call you, to call you a friend. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.